Welcome to the Thinking Leader Podcast, sponsored by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. In each episode, we bring you new ideas and insights from some of the greatest business and thought leaders to help you think more deeply and lead more effectively so that you can be a great leader too. Here again is your host, best-selling author, speaker, and unconsultant, Bryce Hoffman. Hello, my guest today is Mark McNally, Chief Nobody at Nobody Studios, an ambitious new venture studio that aims at nothing less than rethinking the way that good ideas are transformed into great businesses. Mark is a serial entrepreneur whose first startup went public with a $4 billion market cap back in 1999 when he was just 24. Since then, he has helped launch 14 companies, raised more than $300 million, and seen over $5 billion in exits. One of the many things I like about Mark is that he started out as a PSYOPs guy with the U.S. Army Special Forces, and as you'll hear, he has applied many of the valuable lessons he learned there to rethinking the way his businesses do business. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bryce. Good to be here. So I want to start not by talking about your business career, but by talking about your military career, because one of the things that that I have really come to see in, in my own work is the value of applying military thinking to the problems of business. Tell me a little bit about your career in the military. Sure. And by the way, got your books over the weekend, so super excited to dive into that. A lot of resonance with some of the things you picked up already on the on your intent in that book. You know, I, I grew up in a family with a, a Air Force Colonel, F-105 pilot, and kind of grew up with the stories and the, the service. So that was kind of in my blood. When I decided I wanted to go, I was fortunate enough to, to test pretty well. And so I kind of let the, each service kind of tell me what they had to offer. And the Army said, well, we've got this special operations category that's kind of cool because you get to jump out of planes and do some real cool spec ops stuff. But the actual specialty... Uh, with psychological operations, which is like winning the hearts and minds. So I kind of told myself, well, that's cool. You get to do some some really badass stuff at the same time you get to use your mind, right? And I never regretted that. It was a, it was a really, really good choice. I spent some time, I got deployed to Haiti for six months, and that was uh, a really interesting time in my life. And sometimes the most rewarding time in my life. And I look back at my career since has been defined by, you know, the things you accomplish or what you have or whatever else. But at that time, you know, money didn't matter. It was going into a bank account somewhere. You wore the same clothes every day. You drove, drove a beat up truck, but just that sense of being there for a bigger purpose. And at the end of the camaraderie of a group of people that have your back was one of the most fulfilling times in my life. And when was that? And what was going on in Haiti? Yeah. So that was uh 95, you know, there was an uprising. There was a lot of uh, immigrants coming into the country and washing up on the shores of, of Miami every single day. Uh, pretty brutal dictatorship was one of those moments that America says, you know, it's time for a bad guy to go and a good guy to come in. It was an interesting deployment because we spent months training for an invasion and we got months, you know, training for, you know, the bad guys and knowing them by name and by face and where they were going to find them and, you know, planning for that. On the 11th hour, there was a peace settlement negotiated by Jimmy Carter and the bad guy general got $10 million at a mansion in Panama. <laughs> and uh, a couple weeks later, we were landing and we were walking off the plane instead of jumping out of it. And we were shaking hands with the guys that we were trained to go get. So it was a pretty interesting deployment because you're surrounded by a lot of distrust, people you're trained to really understand the, the badness that they represent. 
And sometimes there's something to be said for having some decisiveness and cleaning out the bad guys. Really, only the only thing that happened was a handful of bad guys left, and we were left with a country that was still dominated by fear and oppressiveness by hand, you know a larger group of bad guys. You know, back then the psyops you know community was really wired around pamphlets and writing and newspapers and things like that. Unfortunately, literacy rate was something like ten percent in in Haiti, so that was a, a limited vehicle. Um, so we found that speaking was the best way, and we go around and do you know speaking. We found radios was the number one media, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of TV going on. The challenge we had was there weren't a lot of radio stations up and running. Power was spotty. Most radio stations ran on generators. They didn't have the budgets to, you know, buy the gasoline. So we went through the normal channels. We tried to get budgets to pay for radio time and things like that, just rational. You know, we're there to spread the word around democracy and impact the populace. We weren't able to get those budgets approved, but it did occur to us that gasoline was the same as currency for them. And nobody cared how many times we went to fill up our trucks for gas. So we suddenly filled up a lot of jerry cans full of gas and we'd show up and we'd deliver two jerry cans at each radio station. And one was for airing our, our program and the other one was for them to, to air other stuff and make money. And how did that work out in terms of achieving your mission objectives, so to speak? My team got recognized for doing some of the most innovative stuff in Haiti while we were there. We reached a ton of people. You know, I kind of became a little bit of a celebrity Sergeant McNally, we had a radio program called Sock Passe, which is like, what's up, que pasa, that kind of thing. There was a very popular song back then at the time. So we had a lot of people that would tune in specifically waiting for our program. And if it didn't get aired, the radio stations would get phone calls and they'd call us and say, we need more gasoline. People were asking for the program. So we were definitely having an impact. We had credibility across the, you know, the civil political environments that we wanted to and needed to based on that. But you do get to see how out of the box doesn't necessarily translate to a lot of people as well, right? I remember handing off to my, the person who took over my part of, of the country and we're explaining to them all the stuff we've done. And, you know, previously, like the previous week, I just explained to a pretty high ranking black ops person what we'd done and they took copious notes and that got me into a different engagement to help kind of think through future low intensity conflict kind of scenarios. But this new person was more traditionally trained. And everything I said, well, here's what you do on a Tuesday. You fill up two Gary, Jerry cans of gas and you go deliver to this radio station. And then you go on and you record the program. And the look in their eyes was like, who told you to do that? And where are my orders telling me I'm supposed to get that gas? And no, I'm not supposed to be on a radio. I don't have authority to go on a radio station. You know, it was just very different mindset. So anyway, I think we were quite successful at what we did. But I did see a pretty stark contrast between thinking out of the box and maybe a traditional military force. So how did you you go from being a uh, special forces psyops guy in the U.S. Army to uh, becoming a venture capitalist? Well, I'm not sure I'd call myself a venture capitalist right now. I'm still consider myself an entrepreneur. I knew I always wanted to, and uh, even before the service. And when I got to that re-up spot, which, you know, everybody knows when you kind of re-up for the next, you know, six years, it's really a life or decision. And I had, you know, Really strong dreams of being an entrepreneur, and I felt like I'd done quite a bit already in a career, and so I decided to start a second chapter. But I got fortunate. The first uh, entrepreneur opportunity I came across when I left the service was a young group of entrepreneurs who thought they could change the world of business by connecting buyers and suppliers on this new thing called the internet. And uh, I thought that sounded like a good idea, and I joined as employee eight and built it to 800 employees and became the number three in that company. And 
did wrote the S1, did the road show, took it public on the NASDAQ in 99. So I kind of went from, you know, Haiti in 95, 96, and four years later, you know, Manhattan celebrating an IPO. So that was started my entrepreneur career. And what did you do after that? I've been doing entrepreneurial startups ever since. I've been involved in something like 12 to 13 startups since that IPO. All different walks of life in terms of, you know, from B2B e-commerce, um, consumer e-commerce, artificial intelligence, machine learning, pretty equal opportunity on the success side. I've had uh, about a third of them have bankrupted and didn't work out, but a third of them had an exit and succeeded. About a third of them are still out there uh, limping along. So unfortunately in this world, that's a pretty good uh, success rate. <laughs> and yeah, you know, I got to a point uh, a couple of years ago where I was just trying to consolidate all my, my lessons and what my true strong beliefs were and what my last part, or at least the next part of my career is supposed to look like and kind of got on the current journey. So what were some of the lessons that you took from all of those successes, failures, and everything in between? Now, well, I got to tie back to your military question to begin with. The one thing you can appreciate in spec ops, you know, wherever you're at, is there's not a lot of room or tolerance for politics. And there really is a peer-led group, you know, a special ops or spec ops team. There really is no seniority. And people at the end of the day know who's senior if you have to make a, a final call. But it really operates as a group of peers. And in a spec ops team, you can get peered out. So if your group, if your group of peers say this person's a risk to us, they get kicked out of a team. And if it happens twice, you're out of the entire operations command. And I think what that does fairly quickly is it really creates a culture of people having each other's back. And I believe that's where you do your best work. If you really think people have your back, your ego's checked at the door, you're just focused on the mission, you're focused on being there for your brothers, and it gets the best out of people. And for me, going into the business world, that was the first thing I learned. Not everybody comes from that culture. It comes from that, that wiring. I think it's less in a startup, but still in a startup, you'll get people coming from different corporate backgrounds, whatever. And you see politics immediately come into play. You know, people, how people position, how if you're not watching your back, you could stay, step on a landmine. And you spend a lot of energy and time on politics, covering yourself, worrying about how someone might be setting you up. And it's pitiful to think, and it was something I hadn't been exposed to, and it's something that I've always tried to create my startup sense, is just no matter what your background is, the idea of a peer-led group, we all have each other's back, is where the best is going to come. So trying to focus on that is something I do every day. So what is Nobody's Studios? So um, I guess my soul searching a couple of years ago when I was at a transition from one startup, I was trying to figure out where I could apply my best talents and experiences and my passions. And I kind of evolved into a little bit of a visionary over time. It's something that's been come easy for me to kind of see around the next corner, maybe before other people. And so I just explored all the things I thought I stood for and all the things I thought I was good at and explored some of my failures and just said, where am I really supposed to have an impact on this world? And to be honest, the soul searching was open-ended. I mean, I could, if I determined I was supposed to be an organic farmer in Africa right now, that's where I'd be. But I reconnected with that, that vision side of me. And I started looking at what I lived through, which is this huge paradigm shift to the internet that we've all lived through and started asking myself, what is it going to look like the next 20, 30 years? And, you know, I thought started to see some things I thought were going wrong with how we create companies. Venture company creation has become very bloated. I've done a lot of consulting over the years, but the last four or five years, I've met with a lot of entrepreneurs who are, you know, young and naive and excited and motivated just like they should be. But when we start talking about their business model, they talk, tell me two or three or four times how they can't wait to be a unicorn or they they'd somehow refer to some mad, magical valuation as the endpoint, you know, 
and not talking about the problem they're trying to solve or the product they're building and the customer's passion they might have for that. And so it just started to show me some things I started to get pretty passionate about. One, I believe innovation, like we've just gone through with the internet, is not is actually going to go to a whole new level. We're going to start to see five to 10 times speed in terms of innovation and disruption. And people thinking in terms of going really big, really quick, are going to be set up to fail. And I believe that we have to move way faster, way more agile in order to succeed in the next 20 or 30 years. I didn't see a whole lot of people talking that way. In fact, I saw in mass the venture capital community going the wrong direction, applying more capital earlier. Mm-hmm. And I said, look, I'm going to go down on my principles. It's time for me to take all these things I'm passionate about, some of the people around me that thought similar, and see if we can create something that is fundamentally focused on doing it differently. And so Nobody Studios embodies that. It's about com- creating companies in a radical fashion, way faster, where intentionally irrational in the things we do. We say irrational with a smile. Irrational meaning we're going against the status quo, traditional thinking. We're defined by some hairy audacious goals. We're 100 companies in five years. We're defined by speed, agility. It reminds me a little bit of what Rumsfeld tried to do in his years at the you know, Department of Defense in terms of really taking a big monolithic organization that was about fighting giant wars and saying, how do we create small, adept people and teams that can think on their feet? And uh, that's some of the things we're trying to embody in Nobody Studios. So how does it work? How does Nobody Studios structured and, and what is your business model? Yeah, so essentially we create companies. So every company we create, we're a founder, we're a majority shareholder. Investors are part of the studio itself directly. And then every company we create, they get their pro rata of those companies. So it's as opposed to having multiple companies and multiple types of investments, we sell shares right next to our founders and the studio goes in and deploys that capital we currently have 15 companies in development. When you have a majority of a company like that, you get to be more aggressive at making decisions that mitigate risk and unlock value. So if you see the opportunity to pause a company or kill it is the right answer, you can do that. But when you're a passive investor like a VC, you can't. We get to accelerate companies. We get to double down on them. We get to split them if we think a big idea is too big. We get to merge them if we think five ideas are too small. We get to move people around. And everybody who's a part of a Nobody Studios company participates in the whole portfolio. So you really create this, we're all in it together. We all have a a win-win scenario around the success of the organization. So I think we're we're onto something. We're you know, we're building something that's built a lot of momentum, attracted some really great people to at an early stage. We'll be the first venture studio that we're aware of that'll be crowdfunded. So we're also letting small retail investors be a part of the journey. And I think, you know, it's all goes part of our kind of people first. We're called nobody for a reason because it was always meant to be bigger than any one personality. And the idea is we really are creating this venture structure for the masses, for people to say, I, I have resources, I have ideas, I have passions, and I want to affect change. And I can do that no matter what level I contribute. And previously, most venture creation was you know, locked in a back room with, you know, people for some Ivy League schools. Yeah, I mean, and, and open only to accredited investors as well. Accredited and even, you know, pretty substantial accredited investors. You know, if you want yeah. to be a limited partner of a VC these days, it's, you know, it's a million dollar check. Um, so that's a big decision, even if you have it. So I think uh, I love what we're on. You know, we're talking to some, even some massive investors and some huge VC people and they're looking at it going, yeah, we should probably do it that way. So since I can't, we should, I should get involved with you on the side. So 
It, it's interesting, Mark. It strikes me that your vision for Nobody's Studios grows very clearly out of what you were talking about, your learnings from the military, about the value of creating teams where everybody had each other's back, uh, the value of being focused on the mission rather than about politics and, and personality. Is that fair to see that line? Yeah, I think it is. I think I didn't realize it as much on the assumption until doing some reflection as a leadership team in the last few months that I realized that was something that I needed to lead more with in terms of bringing those lessons into this organization. But yeah, I think it definitely is correlated, even down to the point where people say, well, how could you possibly build 15 companies this year? And the answer is, I can't. I'm building anonymous teams that are empowered with our resources, but empowered with a broad mission to make decisions in the field that best suits them, right? And again, that comes from, from my experience. When you look at Haiti, there were something like 30,000 troops in Haiti for that mission. 22,000 of them were in Port-au-Prince, which had 2 million people. And then they took something like 15 special ops teams and sprinkled them around the rest of the country to all the big cities. My city, Gonaives, had a million and a half people, and we controlled it with 14 guys. Wow. So 22,000 or 15,000 in Port-au-Prince, you know, it gives you an example, but the when you start to empower teams like that, you start to think differently, right? Even to the point where, you know, they figured every time they flew a Chinook out to resupply us for the, the month, it cost them $45,000 just in fuel and everything else. So they figured out how to give us a stipend. So we'd come in every couple of months to Port-au-Prince, we'd get $60,000 cash, and we'd go back and figure out how to live in that city for, you know, 30000 a month. So I think that that anonymity and giving that kind of decentralized control and empowering of the right teams is part of what we're trying to do as well. You know, there's only way for us to move this fast is to say what we're really good at as a studio, bringing the resources, the finances, the capital, the structure, the marketing, the relationships, we have to be great at. But empowering the teams to go do what they do as founders and entrepreneurs and go build a unique company, we have to get out of their way and let them do that. The other thing that you mentioned about you know, one of your learnings that you took away from the soft world is, is the idea of checking your ego at the door and recognizing that teams can be stronger when, when people are willing to do that. Your very name, Nobody Studios, would seem to imply that you're, you're bringing that same approach to, to this company. And in fact, your title, as I understand, with Nobody Studios is Chief Nobody. It is. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I, I, uh, the ego check to the door is a big thing. And it's something you, I think you have to remind yourself of every day. You know, I think that you know, we've even on this journey had moments where we've had, you know, two or three great weeks. And it's easy to see a little bit of hubris kind of build in or a little bit of, you know, ego. It's like nothing wrong to feel proud of what you've done. But at the same time, what we're trying to do is hard. We have failures and lessons ahead of us that, you know, we can't predict. And you just got to be humble and keep doing these things for the right reasons and promise to show up every day and bring your best and be honest and humble and open and learn. And that's one of the things that we've, been able to embrace in the moments of uncertainty on this journey is just to say, you know what, we're embracing rapid learning. We're embracing open and honest learning. And that not that we are sitting around drawing up the perfect plan, but that we're going in the direction and what we need to learn along the way, we'll learn along the way. And we trust our people to learn along the way and make the best choice. And we're not ever going to let ourselves sit back and try to craft the, the perfect answer, but we're going to trust in this kind of agile, iterative learning and thinking. 
That's interesting. What What's some of the advice that you give to the entrepreneurs that you work with in terms of what they need to know in order to be successful in building their company as part of this portfolio? Yeah, great question. I'll answer that two ways. On one end, we have, uh, we're building a great library of curriculum. You know, there's, there's, there's anecdotes that I'll hear myself say, or one of our other co-founders or leadership team members say, and I'll be like, man, that was a great lesson. We should bottle that up and make sure that everybody drinks from that Kool-Aid, right? So we are doing that. But Can you give me an example pick, of one of those lessons? Well, what I was going to lead up to is what, we, what I embrace is my single, mm-hmm. single lesson. And I tell people, above all else, like it doesn't matter if I give you 100, if you're only going to pick one and forget the other 99, it's, a, you, and it's the hardest thing for a lot of people to do, is go out there and tell your story. And a lot of people think, especially our insecurities come out, like, no, I'm not ready to go out there and tell the world unless I've got the product launched, or I've got the perfect this, or I've got the perfect that. And what I've learned is that if you're true for your why, and you're true for your intent, then just keep telling the story. Tell it to your dog, tell it to your neighbor, tell it to your grandma, walk down the street, tell a person to the church. Keep telling it because it builds momentum. And the lessons you need to learn in terms of your resonance, what makes sense, you know, the, the actual product value, all comes out in conversations. And I can draw a very straight line and correlation to the amount of times somebody's told the story on a journey and the success of where they're at. If I've got a founder I know has told the story 200 times, even though they weren't ready, and I have another one who's probably farther along on the product that's told the story eight times, that person with the eight times is failing because the momentum builds on itself. One conversation turns into, oh my gosh, you know who you should need to talk to? And then that turns into another one, that turns into another one. And sometimes you don't know that 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 magic moment, every startup I've ever been a part of has some serendipitous moment. You know, I was just walking through a Starbucks and I bumped into this guy that saw this, you know, whatever. And next thing you know, you got your first investor and then that turns into, you know, your first customer. And so the only way that serendipity happens is telling your story. Now, social media, it's, it's easier than it was before. So you got to commit to put it out there. But with Nobody Studios, I did that from the very beginning. I reached out and looked at my Rolodex and I circled about 150 names of, of people I thought would, would take my call at least. And by the time I got to number 20 or 30, my story and my why was starting to come out better. And by the time I got halfway through that list, I was rocking it. <laughs> and by the time I got to the last quarter of that list, I was having people saying, man, I want to be a part of this. How do I help? You know? And so I think just committing to that is one of the hardest things to do. Cause when you're first starting out as an entrepreneur, there's a lot of insecurities, but the only way to solve that insecurity isn't by waiting. It's not going to be looking at the clock. You know, the only way to solve that insecurity is going through, conversations you may not be ready for. It's so interesting to hear you say that, Mark. You know, one of the things that I learned from my mentor, Alan Mulally, is that one of the most important jobs of a CEO is to tell the company's story. And I'll tell you, when he shared that lesson with me, we were we were both uh, giving a talk to young CEOs at a uh, conference down in Mexico a couple of years ago. And we were taking a break and we were sitting on the veranda of, of the resort, looking out over the Pacific. And uh, I was telling him that, you know, Alan, one of the things that I hear from my clients too often is that we can't do X because Wall Street won't let us. We know X is the right thing to do for the future of this company, but we've got to make our, our quarterly 
EPS targets. We've got to we've got to hit Wall Street's expectations for the next three months, and therefore we can't do it. And he said, the only reason you can't do, they can't do it is because the CEO isn't willing to get on a plane and go to Wall Street and tell their story. And he gave me the example of, of one of the things that he considered one of his biggest successes when he was CEO of Ford was the decision to convert the F-150, best-selling car in America, Ford's bread and butter product, to an all-aluminum vehicle in order to, to, to save weight and reduce fuel consumption, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and all the other virtuous things that come from, from the switching to a lighter vehicle format. In doing that, you can't make an aluminum truck on the same assembly line that you make a steel truck. The, the tools are different. The manufacturing processes are different. The machines are different. You've got to retrain the workforce to use those new machines. And so what this was going to require was shutting down production of Ford's most profitable best-selling vehicle, not for a week or two, but for months, for, for the better part of a year, actually. And so when the leadership team decided that this was something they wanted to do, the thing that hung them up was, well, we can't do this because Wall Street will crucify us. When, when they see our sales plummet because we don't have trucks to sell, we're going to yeah. lose market share. We're going to yeah. lose investor confidence. Our share price is going to tank. We can't do it. And Alan said, no, we can do it. We just have to explain why we're doing it. And he got on a plane and he flew to New York and he spent weeks meeting with the senior folks at all the big Wall Street banks and all the big institutional investment houses and explaining to them, telling that story telling them the story about what Ford wanted to do, how it wanted to change the whole landscape of what it meant to build a pickup in the United States from this heavy steel, steel vehicle to this light aluminum vehicle. And that this was the perfect time to do it because they were a company led by an aerospace engineer, you know, who'd been the yeah. former head of Boeing commercial aviation. And so yeah. when he sat down and told people that story and said, here's what's going to happen. We're going to, we're going to, our sales are going to tank for nine months because we need to do this. But when we come back, we're going to be the market leaders. Our, our, we're already the market leaders, but our position is going to be unassailable in this space. And he did it. And they did. They shut their factories down, their sales tanked, and their share price did not. And it's because he told that story. And what he told me a couple of years ago in Mexico when he was sharing that was that too few leaders, too few CEOs understand the importance of getting on a plane and going and telling people their story, their company's story. So I love that you're sharing that as your lesson. Yeah, um, 100%. And you know, from our conversation before, I'm a huge Allen fan and uh, I can't wait to read the book you sent me. Um, I, I think there's there's a difference between narrative and story, right? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, I think that he succeeds because he's telling the logical truth and people inherently recognize it when they hear it. And the absence of that, Wall Street is a transactional cutthroat world. Mm -hmm. But with the presence of that, even if some people choose to profit on it or not like you or short you or whatever, the long-term people will always be there. And I think that, you know, I'm a personally a huge Elon Musk fan, but, but not for the reasons a lot of people will gravitate towards, right? I have watched his career and he's had a tremendous amount of courage to go out there and explain to wall street why they're so screwed up <laughs> and he has said look you guys get us into this mentality of thinking quarter by quarter and the reality is what we're trying to do is strategic disruptive company industry changing kind of decisions i still have to do that as a wall street company but 
I'm going to tell you the truth of why things might be ugly for three, six, nine, 12 months. Right. And it's one of the reasons why he said SpaceX was never public. Right. He's like, if I was public, the pressure for me to launch something, even if I thought it wasn't safe, would be immense because launching brings the cash register. And, and that's, I mean, that's so true. And I've been publicly traded and I watched the, the churn you go through and you get stuck into these cycles of like, I know what I should do, but Wall Street's going to crucify us. And the pressure is immense. The pressure is immense. But telling the stories, making Wall Street accountable, they know it. And again, once you're publicly traded and Ford's in a unique position, they had a lot of institutional people who are going to buy and hold. They're not going to be as you know day in or day out people. But yeah, selling the true story, explaining the rationalization behind what you're doing. And that's one of the things, one of the principles of Nobody Studios is, is transparency. So we've got a couple of core principles, but transparency is one. So I looked at all the companies I've ever been a part of. And I said, what is the one consistent thing that I despised that I thought was completely no value add? And I wrote down narrative, spinning narratives, figuring out what the quarterly annual you know, report was going to be, the investor updates, what was I going to say to the employees in six weeks? It's all about spinning narratives. And it takes a lot of energy because in a narrative, you want to tell this perfect little Hollywood story, right? But companies aren't that way. There's good, there's bad, and there's ugly. And so we've really tried to embrace it. And sometimes we get away from it. And we always correct ourselves and say, man, we're spending too much time overthinking this message. And so embracing more raw, this is reality. This is what the best choice is. This is what we're going to do. This is why. Move on, right? This is what we screwed up. Here's two things we got right. Move on. People will adapt to that communication style. And it's not going to be for everybody. But at least you have people who are part of your world that allow you to operate in the most efficient way. And again, since we're so speed focused, transparency is almost a non-option. You have, you know, it's non-negotiable. Well, this is, this is such an important thing that you've raised. I mean, I, I think there's, there's so many of our problems in business, particularly in the United States, come from the need to be slavishly devoted to quarterly earnings and, and to Wall Street. And the public markets obviously play a an immensely important role in growing businesses because they provide ready access to capital and, and all those good things. But often the question I think people have to ask is at what cost? And I, I think it's a hard one to ask. I think it's a hard one for entrepreneurs to ask and for senior executives to ask. What do you look at when you're working with companies in terms of when it makes more sense to go to the public markets and when it makes more sense to, to not? Ah, great question. I mean, I tend to be on the side of most companies probably shouldn't consider that. That shouldn't be their defined goal. I think people who do say it early on in a journey of a company, it's because somehow it represents something to them. You know, I want to see my picture ringing the bell on the NASDAQ or it represents some kind of financial you know, outcome. But the reality of it is, and it's certainly something else that we're doing differently at Nobody Studios, we're happy to build a company for $3 million and sell it for 30. And we'll do that all day long and twice on Sundays, right? But if I go to a VC and say, I only need $3 million and I'm going to sell this company for between 20 and 30, you know, they'd look at me at the RCA dog. They'd be like, that doesn't compute. You know, it can't make sense with that. You know, they wouldn't be able to write the check. And so I think that that's one of the things we say the venture capital world's getting wrong. We are building a system that is go big or go home, unicorn or bust. And I think it's really unhealthy. I think it's even contrary to the facts. I mean, 80% of M&A transactions, acquisitions, 
80% happen under $150 million. So if you've raised $60 million by the time your Series A is done, everyone on that board is thinking billion dollars or nothing. So whatever you started out as a, you know, aspirational entrepreneur thinking, hey, we're going to build this company and sell it for $30 million. No, you just signed us up for a 12, 15-year career. <laughs> and you've got a lot of board changes and a lot more money and a lot of organizational changes and you have to go public or nothing. And people just don't appreciate what that means, you know? Now, I think if you've got a rocket ship, I think if, if rocket ship for me is defined by users and revenue, then I think Wall Street is a fantastic place to go. I think you can get great valuations. You can raise unlimited capital. There's a lot of benefits to it in terms of growing a team, scaling, making acquisitions, uh, incentivizing a team that you wouldn't be able to do just with cash. I think then that's fantastic. But the idea that every company is going to be that, I think is something we've gotten wrong in the venture world the last four or five years. I think that's that's really true. And I, I think that that's one of the things I find so interesting about your company and about your model is taking this contrarian approach and and recognizing that not every successful company has to be a successful IPO, that not every successful company has to, to make all of its founders billionaires, and that a lot of the companies that change the world in important ways are companies that, that people, most people, the average investor, you know, civilian investor, if you will, uh, has never heard of. 100%. 100%. I mean, those are the best, right? I mean, it happens every day. Companies you've never heard of are selling for $30, 40 $50 million. It's just as a, as an ecosystem, we're actually not built for that anymore. It's kind of ironic. I love irony. But um, one of the reasons why venture capital was born to begin with is because Wall Street essentially was a bunch of bankers. And they wanted to look at everything as, you know, some kind of multiple of EBITDA. And I can loan you some kind of ratio of your cash flow or something like that. Well, that doesn't lend yourself to building new companies, right? Right. And a bunch of guys who successfully sold technology companies in the late 70s and early 80s. Today, we should start supporting young entrepreneurs. And venture capital grew up over time. And they started to create the system of, well, I'm going to be a seed investor and you're going to be a series A and you're going to be a series B. And everybody stayed in their lanes. But it's kind of worked because everybody knew what they focused on. And if I'm a series A guy and my trusted seed guy called me and said, I got a great deal for you. I knew it had gone through some, some hurdles. I know it had gone through a certain growth stage and it was ready for my capital. And that went all the way up the chain. There used to be Series D guys. That was a $30 million check. Now you can get that in your garage. But, and there was a deal at the Series C and Series D level with Wall Street. When we come to you, we're going to have companies ready to go public and you're going to take them public. And Wall Street's okay, but you're going to give me a 30% discount the day before. And so Wall Street had this built-in you know, instant return which is why mutual funds had 12% performance for 30 years straight because it was just like automatic, right? The irony is Facebook came along and Facebook decided not to go public. They didn't need to. Why? Because some billionaires realized how big Facebook was going to be and said, let me invest in you directly, wait to go public a few more years. And then that was repeated with, with Uber and Lyft and 150 other companies. But what happened was companies started going public, but instead of going public at a $4 billion valuation and raising to 80, a Wall Street throwing a party, they started going public at 60 billion valuation. And after a while, Wall Street's like, hey, we're not, we're not enjoying the party like we used to. <laughs> so they packed up their bags of money and they moved to Silicon Valley and they started creating their own venture funds and they started investing more in venture funds. And then venture funds had the problem of big numbers 
And then they had to compete for deals that even might look promising. And so they started competing on money. And so they started telling some, some inspirational entrepreneur with a great idea, you know, I know that you want to raise $2 million and give up 25% of your company. Yeah, that's a $8 million valuation. But I need to give you $20 million because I have a lot of money to deploy. And that'll just make you succeed faster. And the entrepreneur's like, but I'm not giving up 97% of my company. And the, and the CV said, no, no, don't worry about it. We'll just give you a $60 million valuation so you can take my 20. And so valuations went through the roof. And now you got a whole bunch of young entrepreneurs and companies focused on all the wrong things, picking the paint of their new headquarters, their new lobby, you know, all these things. They haven't figured out their product yet. And again, the irony is we've screwed up venture capital. The inherent checks and balances that used to be with the C, the Series A, and the Series B, and the Series D are gone because people are getting Series C and D money when they're still in their garage. And we're not creating really good early stage, mid stage companies. And again, the irony is that Wall Street screwed it up. <laughs> and that's why venture capital is created to begin with. Well, that's so interesting because, you know, I mean, it's this whole idea that, that success is a poor teacher, right? And if you're a young entrepreneur and you're, and you're handed, you know, bags of money from some Richie Rich cartoon, you don't have an opportunity to learn those hard lessons that a bootstrapper learns that are ultimately going to be the things that help you navigate much more serious problems later in the life cycle of your company, right? Well, 100%. I mean, it's one of the things we spend a lot of time on early with our teams is saying, what is the metrics we're going to judge ourselves by? And every company's got a different set of metrics, but we're not looking for 30 things. We're not looking for a dashboard with 120 things. We're saying, what are the one or two things? Because everything we do every day has to be about driving those. And if you can show some early success, then you can scale to the moon, right? If you can figure out how to get to the first thousand customers and you thought that was going to be six months and you did it in eight, but then you got your next thousand in the next three months. Now you can draw any number you want and it's possible. But if you're still celebrating the victory of some huge valuation, if you're saying the most important is to hire the next 18 people, you lose sight of, is my product resonating with people and people are willing to pay for it? You're not getting that feedback, that organic feedback from the market. That's right. It's all fabricated. It's all synthetic, right? That's why I say, people say, look at that amazing valuation. I'm like, that was just an Excel exercise. The valuation grew because the VC wanted to put in more money. It's not because it earned it. There's no independent truth to that. And you can have all the best valuations in the world and you can still be in the startup graveyard in two years. It's, it's, you can't take it to the bank. The only thing you take to the bank is users. This is what I love about what you're trying to do with Nobody Studios is you're, you're kind of, uh, you know, you're kind of being the Toto of the investment world, ripping the curtain back uh, and showing us that the great and powerful Oz is really a uh, doddering old guy who uh, is just trying to keep people believing his, his own mythology. Yeah, you know, what I, like I, I do think I embrace the we're challenging everything. Right. And I say it to anybody, but I do resist the narrative that it's us versus them. Right. Mm -hmm. Because all I'm saying is that there's the right time to apply big capital. And the right time is when a young company is validated. And the current system is not as good, not even close to as good as it needs to be to create validated young companies. And again, go back to our thesis about the speed of innovation. Not only do we need more young validated companies, but we probably need like 20x more young validated you know, early stage companies. And so nothing in the current ecosystem is building that. So we intend to fill that. And we're glad to partner with our VC brethren to take those companies and scale them to the moon. But we're going to sleep at night knowing we built companies right that first 12 to 18 months. That's awesome. What does ultimate success look like for Nobody Studios in your mind? 
Uh, you know, for us, it's always meant to be a vehicle for a much broader way to change the world. You know, I said it's it's bigger than any one personality, but what that means is that people are going to get into this this vehicle, which is nobody's studios, and they might create a they might create a chapter or a, a satellite office in New Delhi or or Shanghai and go create the next hundred companies there. You know, and we're going to be doing it in a way that has happened to me since we started this journey. That if I ever find myself, you know, ranting about something personally or whatever, professionally, my wife has gotten the habit of saying, aren't you in the business of creating companies to solve the world's problems? And I, I really enjoy that because if we see something that's screwed up and I've said my entire life, somebody should do that. Right. And now we're like, oh, wait, we can. And there's a recall opportunity, right? We don't have to be so profit oriented. You know, obviously we need to keep the, the gears turning, but if we want to change the world in something like fresh water, you know, or, or access to the internet or whatever, we can grab on to lofty aspirational change the world kind of things. And I think that's the kind of ideas that have been attracted to us as we've spread the word. People are definitely into it to impact their lives, but hitting some magical number is really not the motivation. At the end of the day, people just want to take care of their basic needs and they want to be a part of something bigger. And I think that's frankly a side effect of the pandemic that's helped us resonate with a lot of people that we're talking to people in amazing corporate positions, you know, normally jobs they'd never leave, but they're saying, no, I want to be part of something bigger, you know, and we're we're very crowd infused. We're very people-based. Everything we try to do, we say, how do we engage the crowd to validate our thinking, make it better, scale it. And so, yeah, I guess to answer your question after my long-winded one, it should be a vehicle that is really crowd powered, people powered and affecting change across the world. That's all. That's awesome. That's awesome, Mark. How can people learn more about Nobody Studios? Nobodystudios.com should be the best place. I'm pretty open, so people can email me, Mark at. We'll be pretty engaged with the crowd as we move forward. We'll be launching our crowdfunding here in a month or so. So people will be able to engage. We'll have forums for ideation, marketing, market research, global expansion. Like I said, we'll be pretty transparent on what we're trying to accomplish. So people will have lots of, re- lots of ways to engage in the conversation. That's wonderful. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Bryce, thanks so much. I've really enjoyed getting to know you and look forward to future conversations. Likewise. Thank you for listening to the Thinking Leader Podcast, sponsored by Red Team Thinking. To subscribe to Bryce's free newsletter, visit his website, brycehoffman.com. And don't forget to follow Bryce on social media. You can find him on LinkedIn and Twitter at Bryce Hoffman. All one word. That's B-R-Y-C-E-H-O-F-F-M-A-N. And to learn more about Bryce's company, Red Team Thinking, visit us at redteamthinking.com.